Today we will have the opportunity to speak about the fourth tetrad or the last group of four steps within the practice of Anapanasati. This fourth tetrad is particularly concerned with Dhamma or Tama, which means truth, the truth of nature. And so this tetrad is known as Tamanupatsana, the contemplation of Dhamma. If we recall, the first tetrad, the first four steps of the practice, were a study of the breathing and the body. We studied these, these physical aspects of life until they were well understood. And then in the end, based in this knowledge, there was the ability to calm the Gaya Sankara, the body conditioner. So in step one, we learned what we needed to learn in order to calm the breathing. Through the calming of the breathing, there arose various pleasant feelings, or Vedana. And in the second tetrad, we study these Vedana, these feelings that arise out of the calming of the breathing. And in this way, the second tetrad follows out of the first. By studying and experimenting with these feelings, we develop enough control to calm the citta sankhara, the mind conditioners, which are those very feelings. At this point, it's not possible to deal directly with the jitta. And so we're not talking about controlling the jitta directly or controlling the mind directly or even knowing the mind directly. Rather, we're dealing with these symptoms or conditions of the mind, which we call the jitta sankara and then learning how to calm these jitta-sankhara, these feelings, so that they no longer have control over the mind. In doing so, this brings us to the third tetrad, which is begins to specifically work with the jitta, and is known as jitta-nupatthana, the contemplation of mind, which was discussed yesterday. In this tetrad, we study, develop, train, and practice various ways of controlling the jitta. This is to really expand on one's knowledge of life and one's ability to be master of life. And in this way, the mind becomes a very sharp tool and is prepared to do the last part of the practice or the fourth tetrad of Dhammanu Patsana, contemplation of truth. And so, through these first three tetrads, the mind has been developed and trained 
and it now has enough control. We have enough control over the mind so that it is within our power. The mind is within our influence. And now the mind can be used in order to do this last part of the practice of studying truth, studying the reality of nature, seeing things as they really are. And this is where we've come to for today's talk, the contemplation of Tama. So when we come to the fourth tetrad, the mind has been well trained. The mind is now under our, within our control and under our power. This means that it is prepared to work. It has been trained in such a way that it is most fit for work. As we discussed yesterday, the true meaning of constant in in those three characteristics of concentration, there is the characteristic of gamaniyo, or activeness. The mind is very active and agile. It's ready to work. This is a kind of activeness and preparedness that is not stiff or rigid, but it is very supple, flexible, gentle. In this state, the mind is now very, very sensitive. It is, has a kind of sensitivity that is very subtle and detailed, re, very refined, and also extremely quick, so that it is able to pick up things very, very quickly. So this mind that is very active, flexible, and sensitive, is now ready to do the duty of the fourth tetrad. And the essential duty of the fourth tetrad is in considering, examining, and contemplating impermanence. Now, the fundamental principle that we must hold to in contemplating impermanence is that we contemplate impermanence internally. We contemplate impermanence within the mind. This is very important. We cannot, because if we see impermanence internally, then it will be quite easy to see impermanence in external objects. But to just see impermanence in external objects is unlikely to lead to a profound understanding of impermanence. So, in Anapanasati, we study impermanence internally within the body and mind. The way we do this is we go back to the very, very beginning of the practice and we take up the breathing that we began with and we contemplate that breathing until we see the impermanence, the constant change, the constant flow and flux of that breathing. 
when the, the normal breathing is seen as impermanence, as impermanent, then we take the, the next object of the longness of the breathing. And we see that that longness is also impermanent. It's always changing, getting longer or getting shorter. It's not permanent in any way. And then the shortness of the breath. We contemplate that until we see that it too is impermanent. And then the influence, the influence of the different kinds of breath upon the body. All these influences are in themselves impermanent, and so we must contemplate that. And then the calming of the breathing. This is contemplated to see that it is impermanent. We take these one at a time and contemplate each one until they are seen to be impermanent. And then there are the, the feelings of piti and sukha, contentment and happiness. These are also impermanent and we study them until we see that though they may arise and be quite strong, after a while they pass away or change, that they are not stable and permanent. And then the influence of these upon the mind must be contemplated and studied. And then finally the calming of these feelings. This too must be observed and scrutinized and examined until we penetrate to the impermanence of the calming of the jita sankara, the feelings. And then in step nine, we review step nine and see that all the different mind states are impermanent, which is logically hard to, hard to miss. If we have to deal with all these different kinds of mind states, well, there must be a change from this one to that one and from that one to another. So all of these mind states are changing. None of them are permanent. And then the step 10, gladdening the mind. No matter how successful we become at gladdening the mind, that gladdening, that making the mind joyful and happy will always be impermanent. And then in step 11, concentrating the mind. We may think we have come to a very stable and steady level of concentration, but it, it is still impermanent. That very deep, no matter what level of concentration we come to, it will be changing. Within itself there is constant change. And then lastly, the liberating of the mind. It's only a, a temporary liberation. And so this is also impermanent. So when we contemplate impermanence, we go through each of the various steps of anapanasati, which we have practiced so far. And now we, we re, redo each of those steps. But instead of viewing them in the way we originally did, now they are examined as impermanent we contemplate and examine each of these 12 objects until the, each object is seen to be constantly changing and in an eternal state of flux. So this is the meaning of contemplating impermanence.
we can summarize it by saying it is contemplating sankhara. It is contemplating all the conditioned things which have been arising and passing away throughout the, pra- the practice of anapanasati. So this is what we do in step 13. We contemplate the impermanence of the sankharas. When impermanence or anicca is contemplated within all these various things which we just summarized, then there will be also the realization that all these things are dukkha, that they have within them the condition or state of unsatisfactoriness. In contemplating and seeing that all these impermanent changing things, they're unstable, they cannot be depended on, there is no way that we can find any lasting satisfaction in any of these things. For this reason they are ugly and independable, undependable and hateful. And so from seeing impermanence then we come to see the the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of all those sankhara. From seeing the change and unsatisfactoriness, the impermanence and dukkha of all these sankhara, then our realization goes even further and deeper to seeing that all of these things are not self, they are not soul, that because of this change which is beyond our control, because of this unsatisfactoriness, if they were really us or I or mine, we could control them and they would, they would be satisfying the way we want them to be. They wouldn't change like that. And because of, so we begin in this way to realize that all these things are not self, that in them we cannot find any self. <clears throat> the understanding of not self then follows from the realization of anicca and dukkha. And then this realization of not-self or anatta deepens into the penetration to the truth of sunyata, voidness, that all things are void of any self, of any soul, of any I or mind, that all things whatsoever are empty and void of any meaning of the word self. In them you can find nothing that is an I or that could be claimed to be mine. In seeing sunyata, voidness like this, then this in turn deepens into the realization of tatata, thusness or suchness, that all these things are just the way they are. They're not different in any way. They just, they have this quality of being thus, the state of being thus. And so this is the realization of tatata 
or suchness. And then from realizing suchness, then there is the realization of itapajayata, which is the law of causality, the natural law of cause and effect, that all these things are interrelated and interdependent through the law of cause and effect. They arise through causes and pass away through causes, and in doing so also have effects upon other things. So the fullest to really see impermanence in this step 13 of Anapanasati, one has to have a such a profound realization of impermanence that it includes dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, non-soul, sunyata, voidness, tathata, suchness, and itapajayata, the law of cause and effect. When all these are seen, then impermanence is truly seen on the deepest and most profound level. And then this is to see the impermanence, dukkha, anatta, sunyata, tathata, and itapajayata, of all sankhara, of all conditioned things. Remember that there are three meanings to this word sankhara. The things which are conditioned, the things that condition other things, or the conditions themselves, and then the act or process of conditioning. So all the sankhara, all the products of conditioning, all the conditions, which are the cause of conditioning, and all the processes of conditioning themselves. All this sankhara is anicca, impermanent. And this impermanence must be seen on the very deep and profound level which we have just <coughs> described. There's a fact which we must discuss <coughs> about the contemplation of impermanence. To just see impermanence by itself is no big deal because this has happened all over the, all over the world and the teaching of impermanence is nothing extraordinary. The Buddha by, was by no means the first person to teach impermanence. It was taught all over India and in other places as well. So to to see impermanence in an incomplete way that does not include dukkha and anatta is not, not very profound and it is not sufficient to solve, solve our problems. In fact, the Buddha in the scriptures mentioned that there was a religious teacher of his time, that was about 2,600 years ago, named Araka, as far as the Buddha knew his name. And this Araka, the Buddha said, was lived in some faraway city. Didn't specify exactly where. And said that this, this teacher taught that all flows. The Buddha said that this Araka taught impermanence. This was his central teaching, the teaching of impermanence. 
and he taught it in detail. However, Araka did not teach impermanence on a profound enough level that included dukkha and anatta. And for this reason, Araka's teaching was incomplete and was not successful in the process of spiritual liberation. So it was still incomplete. This is an interesting point, and anybody who's familiar with Greek philosophy will know that at the same time of the Buddha there was a Greek philosopher living named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus's central teaching was everything flows, everything flows. This was what he based his, his philosophy upon. And what the fragments that are remaining of Heraclitus's teaching are all emphasizing impermanence. So there's a good chance that the Araka, who the Buddha talked about, was Heraclitus. And anybody who wants to look this, look into this, can check in any history of Greek philosophy, and you'll come across Heraclitus and what he taught. There you'll find that Heraclitus only spoke of impermanence and did not go into dukkha and anatta. In fact, there are many teachings, especially in the modern world, much of science is basically teaching impermanence. But it's often just on a material level, and it unfortunately is not profound enough to include the realization of unsatisfactoriness and not-self, and then voidness, suchness, or thusness, and the law of cause and effect, itapajayata. So, this teaching of anijja in itself is quite well known. In and outside of India, before, during, and after the Buddha's time. And to just see impermanence, which is in itself quite useful, is still not sufficient. It must be apprehended and understood in a more profound way, which will also penetrate to the truths of unsatisfactoriness and anatta, not-self. The result of realizing impermanence or of anicca nupatsi, the result of this is that attachment begins to dissolve. Through seeing impermanence, the attachment or clinging, or upadana, begins to break up and dissolve. This is because in seeing impermanence, the impermanence of things, on the profound level that we have described, not on just the superficial level of Heraclitus, but in seeing it on the most profound level, then the penalty, punishment, and suffering that is inherent in all attachment and clinging will be, will be seen. And in seeing that punishment and penalty, then attachment begins to dissolve. So this dissolving and breaking up, the falling apart and fading away of attachment, this dissolving 
is the result of truly seeing impermanence. So the natural result, the inevitable result of, of realizing impermanence is that attachment will begin to dissolve. This happens by itself. Now in step 14 of Anapanasati, step 13 was the contemplation of impermanence. Step 14 is then to contemplate, to examine that process of dissolving. It's already begun to happen through step 13. So the object of step 14 is to take that dissolving of attachment which is begun automatically and naturally, to take that as the meditation object, to understand it and see it fully and clearly. This is called Virakanupatsi, the contemplation of Viraka. Raka, you heard about the other yesterday, and often is translated lust or passion. But these are just other words for attachment. And we means to means to not or to or without. So the meaning of Virakai in this case is the fading away, the breaking up of attachment. And so in step 14, this fading away of attachment is contemplated. There's a traditional metaphor for describing this, is that the mind is like a cloth that is stained with many different colors. These many different colors are our attachments. But those stains slowly will fade away. If we leave the cloth in the sun, the sun will bleach the stains away and the cloth will slowly become whiter and whiter. And so this fading away of those stains is a good description of the fading away of attachment. Except in this case, it's the sun, it's the light of seeing things as they truly are, as impermanent, dukkha and anatta. This light, it's not a physical light, but a spiritual light, which causes the fading away of the attachments. And as the attachments are fading away in that natural process, then this is studied and contemplated. So this fading away of attachment is taken as the object of step 14 of the practice of mindfulness of breathing. The result of this fading away of attachment we can call balance, equilibrium, or non-attachment. As attachment fades away, then the mind is in a state of, of being undisturbed. It is balanced and centered. And in this way, it is not being pulled in this direction or that direction by the attachments. 
This is the result of the fading away of attachment. This can be seen quite clearly in the following examples. For example, things which we used to love, which we used to have a greedy, possessive love for, we no longer love those things. Things that we used to be afraid of, we are no longer afraid of. Objects of our hatred, we no longer hate. Or things that we used to worry about, that we once worried about and were all torn up in knots about, these things no longer worry us. Or objects of envy, jealousy, fear, possessiveness, greed, stupidity, all these various kinds of attachments no longer have hold over the mind. So the mind is no longer responding to conditioned things in an attached way. And so we can see this quite clearly that the things we used to attach to in various ways, whether in an angry way or a fearful way or a jealous way or a greedy way or whatever, there is no longer this attachment. And so the mind is free. It is balanced and clear. It is undisturbed, unmolested, unbothered by all those attachments. So then we can say that the mind is in a state of non-attachment. Notice we don't use the word detachment. Many people use the word detachment, but this is often misunderstood and we prefer the word non-attachment. Detachment is often another kind of attachment. We see those of us who understand attachment to be positive as a clinging People think, oh, then what I have to do is detach. I have to push things away. I have to get rid of things. This is just another kind of of attachment. We could call it a negative kind of attachment. Detachment is is not a solution to the problem. Detachment is as big a problem as attachment. It's the same problem. So what we're talking about is non-attachment, when the mind is centered and balanced in the, and calm and undisturbed because it is neither clinging to things in the way of trying to get or become something, and it is not trying to push things away or trying to not become. So non-attachment is freedom from both of these kinds of attachment, the positive and the negative of attaching and detaching. And instead there is non-attachment. This is the result of the fading away of attachment. From the fading away of attachment, which is contemplated in step 14, then there comes about the state of non-attachment, which brings us to step 15. 
once again there is that natural process which has been happening all along where as attachment fades away it has to come to an end things that fade away and dissolve naturally come to an end they have their cessation and extinction this is a natural process in the practice of anapanasati then we need to also note and examine that part of the process and so step 15 is when the mind takes as its object of concentra- of concentration and meditation and contemplation that ending of attachment the cessation of attachment this is called nirotanupati the contemplation of cessation cessation occurs naturally and in the in mindfulness of breathing we will examine that cessation so that it is fully understood we can examine the cessation of attachment in a variety of ways we can see the cessation of attaching to things as i that ego identification with with body mind thoughts feelings and whatever as i we can see this ceasing we can see the end of these attachments we can see the end of selfishness selfishness is a kind of attachment and so we can see cessation in the cessation of selfishness or there are the attachments of the defilement which we call the defilements greed anger delusion and so we can see cessation in the cessation of these defilements this is also seeing the cessation of attachment and then lastly we lastly we can see the cessation of dukkha dukkha is the inevitable result is the necessary result of attachment and so in seeing the cessation of attachment we can also see the cessation of dukkha so these are various ways of seeing of of seeing cessation the cessation of attachment contemplating cessation in this way is the object and meaning of step 15 of mindfulness of breathing so now we've come to the cessation of dukkha which is what the practice of dhamma is all about so let's examine this the different ways in which dukkha ceases so that this can be contemplated and so that one's final liberation is will be seen clearly there are four ways we can see the cessation of dukkha first there is the cessation of being frightened by birth aging illness and death for the ordinary sentient being birth aging illness and death are objects which we attach to we attach to these processes and they lead to great fear but in the cessation of dukkha 
or the cessation of tukha, this frightening aspect of birth, aging, illness, and death disappears. There is no more attachment to these, and so they are no longer terrifying. The second aspect of the cessation of dukkha is that the various symptoms or conditions of dukkha also cease. These are situations such as sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, sadness, pain, frustration, depression. These various symptoms of dukkha will also cease or be extinguished. The third aspect of dukkha that must be contemplated is the cessation of all liking, disliking, and wanting. This is because meeting up with things we don't like is dukkha. Being separated from the things we like or love is dukkha. And not getting what we want is dukkha. These three aspects of dukkha also cease. The dukkha that comes from meeting up with things we don't like ceases because there is no more disliking. And the the dukkha that arises from being separated from that which we like or love, this also ceases because there is no longer that kind of attachment. And the wanting, the attached wanting, which also leads to dukkha, ceases. Then lastly, the fourth aspect in which dukkha ceases is the cessation of the four aggregates of clinging, or the five, the five aggregates of clinging. There are five groups of things we attach to. The body group, the feelings group, the perceptions group, the mental activity or thinking group, and the consciousness group. These are five groups of things that the mind habitually attaches to as I. There's habitual discrimination and identification with these things as I. And this inevitably causes dukkha. But when these attachments, when these the five groups of attachment cease, then dukkha ceases in this fourth aspect. And so these are four aspects with which we need to contemplate the cessation of dukkha. Because the cessation of dukkha is the, the goal of the entire practice. It's what we've been working for all this time. And so this is the the final, the final breaking through of the whatever. <laughs> and so with all this cessation of attachment, there comes about the state of non-attachment. And so the mind is in this state of attachment and it begins to experience the non-attachment. It drinks tastes, 
bathes in this non-attachment. Non-attachment or nirota is a synonym for nibbana. And so with the cessation of all attachment and all dukkha, there is the experiencing, the tasting, the bathing in nibbana, the coolness when there is no more attachment. So through the cessation of attachment comes about the state of voidness of, from attachment. There is no attachment, the state of voidness, which is non-attachment or nibbana. And so with the cessation of attachment, this naturally brings us to the 16th and final step of anapanasati. This is called Patinitsaka Nupatsi. Patinitsaka means to throw back, to toss back. This is kind of an amusing thing to think about because in the last step there was the end of attachment and we pretty much said that that was what we've been working for. But then there's this one last step, step 16, of the throwing back of all the things that we have attached to. Now that attachment has ended, then there is the tossing back of those objects of attachment. These are given up, relinquished. This is the sixth step of Anapanasati. There's a very useful metaphor we have for describing this, and this should make you understand quite easily what this 16th step is about. We can, we can see that throughout our lives we have been thieves, Throughout our lives, we have been stealing things constantly. We've been attaching to things and claiming them to be I or mine. So our whole life has been a process of theft, constant theft, constant attaching to this is I and that is mine. But in reality, none of these things are I or mine. We don't own any of that. And so in step 15, with the end of attachment, or excuse me, when attachment ends, which we contemplated in step 15, then there is the full realization that none of these are I and none of them are mine. And then we realize that we've been a thief all along that we've been stealing all these things. And so now, in repentance for all this larceny, we throw all those things back to their rightful owner. We no longer claim that anything is I or mine. Instead, we admit, oh, <laughs> it's not me and it's not mine. And then so we just, we toss everything back to nature because nature is the 
the rightful owner of all these things. This is the meaning of throwing back of Bhadinitsaka. There's another metaphor which we can use. Because of our foolishness throughout our lives, we've been picking up very heavy objects like these rocks, and we've been putting them up on our shoulders and lugging them around with us. Throughout our life, we've been picking up these heavy burdens and carrying them around. This is only because of our foolishness. But one, one day we realize how stupid it is to carry all these heavy loads around, how much they make us tired and worn out and all the problems that they cause. So once we realize how stupid it is to carry these burdens around, then we just go, oh, and we toss them away. And then there's no more burden, there's no, no more heaviness. And then everything is light, and all those problems have disappeared. So this is another way of describing that we've been picking up all these burdens by attaching to things. Everything that we attach to as I or mine becomes a burden for the mind. It becomes some heavy object that we carry around with us. Wherever we go, our possessions, all the things we cling to, whether physical or mental, are weighing down the mind. So our mind is cluttered with all these heavy objects. This is nothing but foolishness until one day we realize how stupid it is and then we just toss away all those burdens and then the mind is light. It's free of all those heavy objects and all the problems caused by those heavy attachments. So this is another metaphor we can use to describe what happens in the final step of Anapanasati. So these are ways of describing step 16, which we can summarize as the throwing away of the burdens of life. In step 16, we get rid of, we toss away, we throw away all the burdens of life. Because of attachment, we've been piling up all these heavy weights upon us. And so we can, we can see this as being buried under the world. We're caught and trapped underneath the world because of all this attachment, because all of these burdens. Because of this heavy weight, it's always pushing and pushing us down. But once we throw away all those burdens, there's no more weight to hold us down, to keep us trapped beneath the world. And so we float up. And then we, instead of being caught under the world, we are above the world. This is the meaning of being free. Any of you who are interested in freedom this is the true meaning of freedom. If you're interested in well-being, this is the true meaning of well-being. To be above the world instead of caught up 
within it and underneath it. So these are the, there are two important Pali words which describe this and you would do well to remember them. The first is logiya, which means being caught under the world. And loguttara, loguttara, which means to be above the world. So know the difference between logiya and loguttara, logiya and loguttara. Know the difference between these two, and then you will understand the true meaning of peace, of liberation, of well-being. And so we recommend that you make this the object of your practice from now, from now on. This is what you need to be practicing for, to, to be above the world rather than caught up and trapped within it. So for those of you who like the word emancipation, this is the meaning of emancipation. This is the way to emancipation or to spiritual survival. The way to survive spiritually, to be emancipated, is through the complete and successful practice of the 16 steps of Anapanasati. We've described all 16 of them, and today we've shown you that they end in the emancipation of the mind from all attachment, from all dukkha, from all burdens, so that the mind is above the world. So this is the meaning of emancipation. Or if you prefer to call it liberation, that's just as well. Or we can call it release or letting go. This is, what's this is what happens through the full and perfected practice of mindfulness of breathing. It results in the mind, in the letting go of all things, and then freeing the mind from all the things which have attached to it. So there is nothing clinging to the mind, and the mind is clinging to nothing. Everything has been given back to its rightful owner, to nature. This is the meaning of emancipation, liberation, deliverance, salvation, letting go, release, freedom. Whichever of these words you prefer, understand it in this meaning. And if you understand this meaning, then you will now have the tool to bring about your goal, whether your goal is emancipation, liberation, salvation, deliverance, release, freedom, or whatever. We have now described to you the way to bring that about. This ends the discussion of the 16, 16th step of Anapanasati. And we would like to finish today's meeting at this time. <laughs>